How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 235. Oh, very nice. There we go. What did you say? 335. Hold on, cowboy. It's been around not for a long there, time, but yeah. not that long. I wonder what director we're going to do. 335. For, yeah, 100 episodes from now. That's less than two years from now. Yes. 335. Almost two years, yeah. <laughs> to believe that this year we will hit 250. That's crazy. Yeah. A quarter century. A real quarter century. Zeke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> four that's decades a, that's old. That's a deep cut. That's a deep four, cut right four there. Four decades old. Oh, that's so Two funny. How, how are you, Zeke? I'm good. I'm still on holiday. So my life. You life's, are. Well done. Well, it's chill. Yeah. Um, that's good. Yeah, I was saying to you off the, off the air, it's, it's sounding weird because obviously being away for a week and then coming back and then just sort of spending the last week at home. Yeah playing games and chilling mostly and you feel you actually feel like you're like wagging work like, right yeah it's getting to that point like Luce and i were talking about it today it's like it feels like i should be at work right now mm. like i've been at home for too long yeah like do i still have a job like <laughs> um, everyone's there right now you're like oh no <laughs> i actually i kid there. you not i did ask my colleagues verna and candace shout out just shout out to, to verna them. and candace um, I asked them in our little group chat. I was like, "We're not going back to today." <laughs> <laughs> if they said yes, you would be freaking out. Yeah, but um, yeah. So still at home playing games nice. mostly. Um, but still watched quite a bit this last week. So Excellent. um, that's good. I can't say that I've seen too much. I've been busy. You, you noticed it straight away, Zeke. My bookshelf got an upgrade. I know. Added some extra shelves. I know this room too well. Yeah. Well, that's true. I was one. I was generally curious because it, immediately, I don't think it's obvious that there's more shelves because it looks exactly the same. Yeah, well, it's, it's the, the same, same white shelves. Yeah, it literally just has more shelves in it. I think you probably notice it because it just looks more full now. There's no headroom yeah. before the DVDs, and it gives you a massive amount more space. Well, that's it. I got so much. I used to have. I mean, you saw it. I would have like piles of DVDs in the corner because yeah. I just couldn't be stuffed. Working out, not only like moving some off other shelves and doing the alphabetical thing, but then at the bottom, I'm already like trying to figure out like where do I put the space. So now it's a bit more. Well, literally double the space. So we're good. Yeah, yeah. And you've gone for the uh, mix. So Jake oh, has yes. mixed his DVDs, DVDs with his Blu-rays. And Blu-rays yeah. Um, well, I wanted to even, them. if you look at the bottom, because I got those big-ass VHS Blu-ray tapes, and then I've got actual VHS tapes at the bottom. I wanted to mix those in two, but they're literally too tall for the new shelf space. Uh, so they get their own little spots now. That's okay. There you go. Well, hey, I mean, you've used your time wisely. That's... that's... No, I don't. <laughs> Have I really? <laughs> I don't it, know. it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday. Exactly. We're not all perfect. Much like the film of the week teaches us. Oh. Jake, do you have any fun <laughs> trivia facts from the film of the week, Little Miss Sunshine? I do. Now, of course, a stellar, stellar cast for this film. And I want to talk a little bit about the casting, the unintentional side of the casting, because I think at the time, a lot of these, you know, Paul Dano and, and especially Steve Carell weren't quite at the height of their careers you know, in 2004, 2005, when they would have been cast for the film. And especially Steve Carell, because at this time, he was not a Golden Globe winner of The Office. He was not the mega star of The 40-Year-Old Virgin. He was when the film came out, 
but not when they cast him. And I think there was some trepidation because of that of, oh, we don't know this person. Is he even a good actor? He's not very well known. It's a little absurd to think that about Steve Carell in 2006, but mm-hmm. a couple of years earlier, that was the case, especially because some of the other choices for the character of Frank included Bill Murray and Robin Williams. So I, I had respect and appreciation to the yeah, casting bold, of this film. Bold to, choice, for sure. Yeah, to um, go with you know an unknown, essentially, yeah. over a Robin Williams, who you could totally see in that role. Absolutely. Like a thousand percent. So I, very bold. I love it. Love yeah. the confidence. How about you, Z? What, what's your fun fact about Little Miss Sunshine? Uh, well, I found this one. Obviously, I'm going to centre it around the late Alan Arkin, which was sort yes. of the inspiration behind the choice uh, of this, this week's film. show. Yeah. Um, the production crew made sure that Abigail Breslin, who plays Olive, um, mm-hmm. really was listening to music on her headphones to keep them from hearing Alan Arkin's <laughs> profane language. Um, we did joke off the show, you know, bringing up with Steve Carell and, and Alan mm-hmm. Arkin. They would go on to uh, co-star in in yeah. the Get Smart film. What two three years later, yeah. and um, they've got some funny scenes in that too. I so, um, holy shit, holy shit, yep, a swordfish! <laughs> I think that's the a that's film a, that's that a I just cannot line. fathom why that never got a sequel film. But, yeah, it seems so prime, and it, it must have made money. It yeah. must have. Yeah, but I don't think I've ever heard someone say a single bad thing about it. You know that. Johnny English got a sequel. They got a couple of sequels. <laughs> yeah, and it's just—it's strange to me. Maybe it was yeah. a—maybe they just couldn't get Carell back to do it, or possibly there must have been. There has to be a story. It's not just that they. Oh, we never thought to do a sequel. There's, there's definitely a story behind it. So Absolutely. I'm yeah. curious about that. But that's a good point. I didn't think that you're right. They both starred together only a couple of years after this. Yeah, in a so, much yeah. lighter film. Well, yeah. Well, different. Yeah. Film. Yeah, the film. This uh, the tone here is kind of again bold. Yeah, we shall talk about the film and its directors very shortly. But Zeke, yeah, you said you were watching some stuff. I did catch a bunch of stuff. Yeah, Yeah, give me a little. Give me the uh, the 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 call sheet. The call sheet. Give me the call sheet. I was going to say spreadsheet, but that's not quite as filmic. Well, I mean, we're going to arrange. Uh, I finished the week on a high, obviously excluding talking about the film late, uh, the film of the week later in the show. Mm. Um, so I'll start with the stuff that I didn't sort of gravitate towards. So I watched uh, what I would like to call, you know, those four quadrant or those popcorn comedies. 2012's This Means War, which stars uh, Reese Witherspoon, Chris Pine, and Tom Hardy, and centers around two okay. CIA operatives dating the same girl. Um, yes, it has moments that are quite funny, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it really, in the second half of the, the film, it mm. loses steam and it's, it's quite petty and I, I kind of sit there and I watch it and I feel like that type of film, you know, you talked about no hard feelings last mm. week on the show and I, I yeah. feel like this sort of popcorn comedy, this, the, the, the brain dead comedy sort of film archetype has just disappeared mm. from that that orties to early tens sort of block we don't yeah. get films no like hard feelings is, is a big exception to the rule yeah over these last few years it feels like one last hurrah at least for the the cinema yeah screens. and it's yeah. kind of a shame and i, I know that 100 percent that these types of films are fully dependent on getting bums and seats yeah. um and i think what netflix churns out in its netflix like originals are the equivalent of Hallmark movies. Mm. So they're not the same. 
Um, that there isn't that same sort of blockbuster feeling. We really right. just don't have a this generation coming through. You know, in the last week, Chalamet's Wonka has been dropped as a trailer, and a lot mm. of these actors they're so serious. I mean, Florence Pugh just had a film drop on Netflix. Uh, uh, oh, the wonder. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, first was good. I never. I still haven't got around to it. But. Um. But. A lot of these younger ones, they're, yeah, they're very good, serious actors. Not a lot of them. Mm. There is, we haven't got this, like the Seth Rogen, James Franco. Right, we're, get, we're getting more Leonardo DiCaprio's than, uh, yeah, than yeah, Seth Rogen's. Um, That's a good point. Or the the Vince Vaughn's, mm. you know, the Ben Stiller's. These like who are obviously capable of, you know, more serious roles, but we know them so well for being in those sort of four quadrant yeah. comedies. Well, even like your Jordan Pills that I imagine came from comedy now does horror genre yeah. films. So I, d- I think the interest just isn't there anymore to be funny or to do like pure funny film. I mean, they exist. And you got one I'm actually generally looking forward to is the new Ninja Turtles animated film, mm. which has that cell shaded, very Spider-Verse inspired look to it. But it kind of has that good boys energy, that raunchy teen comedy. Yeah. Like it's not going to be, but like the, the line deliveries from the kids that are playing the Ninja Turtles kind of has that style to it. So you're seeing like little pieces of it here and there, but I mean, you're right. The, the days of like getting 10 super bads in mm. a year, that d- doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And um, sort of switching gears, I mm. caught uh, numerous documentaries in a docu-series. Mm. Um, I'll start with the one that I wasn't as keen on, Into the Deep, the submarine murder case um, centers around. Man, they were quick on that. Yeah, well, that was obviously sub- centered around. Um, Wait, was it actually um, Ocean Gate? No, no, not that. Not, oh. not no, no. It's a twenty twenty documentary. <laughs> I was like, they were fast on that one. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a twenty twenty <laughs> documentary centered around a Danish inventor who is in this self funded amateur space program, mm. and they're trying to build a rocket, has a submarine, and um, kills a journalist on board, and and this oh young God. Australian. Uh, filmmaker originally came on to follow them developing this this rocket ship and mm. obviously halfway through her time with them the head honcho is found for murdering um, and dismembering uh, this other female journalist on board um, and it, yeah it, it's one of those things the things I quite like about it's obviously directed by um, Emma Sullivan it is big positives are the fact that it really was pretty much just her with a camera right um, it's very for esque in that way yeah it's 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 definitely yeah. got that amateur feel to it mm. um and obviously time and place I, I think that there wasn't actually that much of a documentary with just looking at this amateur space program right um until this murder case comes in right. I think it's like the, that's the real pull it's almost yeah like not to say it's fortuitous because it's such a horrible right, thing that's but, happened. Um, but to... in terms of what the documentary turned into, yeah, and yeah, much bigger thing. It's interesting because it's like that goes to show the the beauty of what an observational documentary that doesn't position you to respond in any way. And I actually think her objectivity um, is quite balanced. I think obviously there's, there's subjectivity to an extent, but as a director, she very much has taken just footage she's captured and sort of alluded to this guy there wasn't something quite right about him and then one day goes on this submarine with this yeah. female reporter and and chops him chops her up and throws her away it was very very visceral and 
Um, I can imagine. I noticed because you did log it a day or two ago, and I clicked on it because I was interested, and I saw because I followed Jim Cummings mm. on Letterbox as well, obviously of Thunder Road fame, and he gave the stocker a ten, a uh, five star review. I was like, wow. I could see the 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 positive aspect to mm. that. I I think because what it is is it's this uh, female docker, well this documentarian. She's taken it under herself to just do this docker, and she's just cor- auto corrected with the flow, you know, like right. gone with it. And it's that it is that doco journalism kind of at its finest. Um, I did find it was. You know, it is only 87 minutes. It's probably even still about 15 minutes too long, wow. I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, the subject, mainly because the subject matter are not the most compelling, or at least the pacing of the doco is not as compelling. And I think that comes back to budgetary restrictions. I think she was obviously, at times, completely by herself. It didn't mm. feel like she had a docu... She wasn't a part of a crew. She was an individual putting stuff right. in. So it is a Herculean effort in that sense. Sure. To yeah. develop, um, but it obviously lacks that maybe that polish, that refinement, and that thing that okay. could sort of create a bit more pace. And I think the edit shows it. But I could see it being polarizing in what we constitute what's a what's a good documentary because sure. I can contrast it with something I felt very similar, which mm. is complete opposite. It's premeditated, it's clean, it flows, mm. but it's it's the doco series Muscles and Mayhem. Oh, good segue. And um, and that's obviously a Netflix-produced documentary. These both are technically Netflix-produced, but you can clearly mm. see one was picked up by Netflix, one was oh, produced I see. Yep. by Netflix. Gotcha. Um, and it has that that cleanness to it, and it follows the development and series runtime of American Gladiators, which ran from 1988 to about 1995 mm. for seven seasons, and sort of centers around how this show basically took over the airwaves yeah. in America um, and led to this massive knock-on effect to all kinds of other um, reality game shows that we see now mm. in Wipeout and um, American Ninja Warrior. and So this is the series. It's a docu-series, yeah. And it's five episodes long. It's probably the same. It probably has an episode too many. Right. Probably could have trimmed it down a little bit. Um, it's quite interesting because... Obviously, at the time, it really was sort of like professional wrestling was sort of at its its worst point in its cultural relevancy, and and people just gravitated towards this show where these these athletes would compete against uh, random members of the public, and obviously they would win money if they beat the gladiators. But mm. um, it was an interesting show because it went through the, how they developed the show, how the show got like off the ground despite an incredibly rocky and unprofessional mm. start, and. Um, it is always, I find these um, series based on analysing a show or a period of time of a show, is they're, they're quite interesting because, you know, all of these basically reality TV show stars, they, they kind of get a moment where they can talk about um, such an interesting thing, like a, a cultural impact that mm. a show where all people are doing are just physical challenges and stuff, but how that can uh, affect a society at the time and I, yeah. it was interesting for that reason I would definitely recommend it if you're a big fan of sport right um, Netflix has gotten quite proficient with its sport docuseries mm. I think that it's a good they're un um, what's that series that I always talk about and I'm forgetting it off the top of my head but there's a bunch of sport 
um, ones tied together. Right. I think the AFL. That wasn't Netflix, but there was the AFL Amazon one. Pro, oh, man. That, that was, was so good. Yeah. That was a bit. And that was right after COVID, wasn't it? Or during COVID. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I never caught it. But uh, I don't I don't have the relationship to AFL that most people do, like in terms of they can name every single player in any given year. So it's probably not. I probably wouldn't get as much out of it necessarily as others would. But yeah. Yeah. But it, it's a really solid series. 30 to 40 minute episodes there's about five of them and um basically just shows how as they boomed in popularity the original pilot gladiators were only getting paid the same amount as what they were in the the first season there was no um contracts and a lot of finger pointing but the reality was it was that they were victims of the industry Mm. Um, and an industry. So a lot, there's a lot of victims of the industry at the moment. Um, and yeah, well, that's pretty bang on, isn't it? Yeah. Um, have you caught anything in the last week? I have. It's it's funny you mentioned you can kind of tell the difference between the two Netflix documentaries, one that was bought and one that was sort of birthed and raised by Netflix, so to speak. Yeah. Um, because I saw one film in the last week. I mentioned it last week. It came to. It wasn't. It's not actually a wide release. It was this preview screening. I didn't even realize that. But I saw Talk to Me, it's a okay. new horror film from A24, and I've definitely heard some some not even criticism, but just thoughts about this film of, oh, there there definitely is the A24 formula, and it's like there's a very popular video on YouTube that shows the moment A24 bought the film that was already fully produced and and screening at Sundance. So mm. that misconception of A24 is still out there that most of the things they produce they just buy. So it, it's kind of interesting. That I've, I think it's like a psychological thing now where any sort of elevated horror, quote-unquote, is now just like A24, A24. vibes. <laughs> but um, talk to me. I was very pleasantly surprised. I didn't think it was going to be bad or anything, but I really, really enjoyed it. It kind of does both things because it has the appeal to the general horror audience. There was a lot of young people in our screening, a lot of gasp and whoa and ah, and even some claps at the end. It kind of has that big audience ring to it. Mm. And a lot of that is shown for the iconography of like this creepy graffitied hand that's on every single poster. And the story of the all the teens that have house parties and are all rowdy and, and excited. And it's very Aussie as well. I think they shot in South Adelaide. Um, or South Australia in Adelaide, I believe. And there are a lot of Australian isms in the dialogue and, and the soundtrack. There's even like Sia music in there, but then there's also rap music in there that's very Australian. So mm. there's, there's all those little things in there that the Rucka Rucka boys, of course, famous for their YouTube skits and videos that are very violent and very kinetic and hyper-edited, um, have snuck in there. But you got that for the general audience, like your standard horror tropes, like oh my god the cre- the creepy hand and they they grab it and they see they see um spirits or demons or whatever whatever you want to call it and it kind of it takes over their bodies and you have that aspect of it but i also thought thematically and stylistically the film was just very very well done and like i said these boys are famous for their star wars versus um harry potter ultra violent super hyper cutty youtube videos and very and even their youtube diary about the film getting in the sundance is just like super cutty and explosive and and this film i was surprised at how often it didn't do that it actually paces itself very well it gives a lot of time in the first mm. act to let its characters develop and breathe and even the opening shot feels very halloween-esque it's a big one that goes for a house party 
and it just felt surprisingly coordinated and considered because when I think of YouTuber turned filmmaker, I think of the Smosh movie, which we saw together quite a while ago. <sighs> and uh, I think we're a long way away from that where it's like, oh, this is like, this feels like mm. a real cinematic experience. And in terms of the thematics of it, I just love the whole analog of the hand being an analog to like the vices in our lives, whether that's alcohol addiction or drug addiction or just any kind of addiction and how the Mia, the main character of the story sort of serves that. And without spoiling it too much, uh, it, it is a bit of a downer journey that the story goes on. And, and you, you, you think about, you know, the, the issues that Mia as the character has and what she thinks this hand or, or this mm. vice, this addiction of hers is going to solve and it it kind of does give you a little peep into how the story is going to end, but I love that because it's it, if you if you caught onto that theme, then you can you can see the down spiral journey begin, and it, and it becomes a question, um, not necessarily of, you know how how is this going to be an inspiring story about addiction, but more so, a, a cautionary tale about you know when and where does the, um when when and where is the point of no return, essentially. So I just thought there was a lot of clever things about the film Talk To Me. Yeah. And I won't talk more about it uh, for fear of spoiling it, but I will say it was incredibly creepy that, that me and Blake were driving to the movie theater and we were talking about what we would do if we saw like a an injured kangaroo on the road. Would we would we kill it? Could we not do that? Would we drive past? And of course, that exact scenario happens in the first 10 minutes of the movie. We were a little creeped out by that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you that, needed to talk to Blake. I needed to talk to him. And yeah. he needed to talk to me. Okay. <laughs> Very good. But that that's all I've seen in the last week, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's okay. that's okay. The only other thing I caught I caught today, which was uh, a 2022 Ron Howard documentary. Um, oh. I know. Can you believe it? I'll just Not about the soccer boys. No. Well, he did the dramatic version of that story. Uh, 2016, sorry. So, sorry, oh, Ron. okay. That makes Got my more. years all mixed up. But We're eight going days, back in time. Eight, yeah, eight days in a week. Uh, the touring years of the Beatles. Um, oh. So, I don't know. We haven't really talked too much about the Beatles. You know, we've, we've done, no. uh, obviously, The Last Waltz on the show. And I've talked a little bit about different sort of musical documentaries I've caught. And this... Mm. Um, and I'm, I personally, you know, I haven't grown up in a Beatles household. Um and I didn't know too much about them. I obviously know they're probably arguably the biggest rock band of all time. Mm. Um, and what this one particularly centered around um, was obviously compiled by Ron Howard was the touring years. So basically the years where Beatles mania dawned. And it actually, what surprised me the most was that they stopped touring after they started in 1962 and stopped touring altogether by 66. Yeah, my very little knowledge of the Beatles and their backstory. I always knew in the back of my head that it was not a very long-lived, like, high point or career, yeah, so to well, speak, without them splitting up into their own thing. Well, they actually stayed together for another five or six years after Right, that. okay. So it's that's the thing. They were actually together for over, I think, 11 or 12 years before then they they went their separate ways. They actually stopped touring halfway through because that they Beatle, were just done Beatle with Mania. touring. Yeah. Um, because, and what the documentary is trying to encapsulate is obviously how the band came to be from um, performing in bomb shelters and in Liverpool out mm. to this, obviously this iconic band at the time. And, 
basically what it strives to do is actually show how cohesive they were. I think our generation in particular, and obviously where we're, we know that they were this big rock band that broke up mm. because, uh, well, Yoko Ono is the one that always gets brought up. And, right, okay. um, but what the documentary is definitely striving to do is actually to show how close they were. And, and obviously it has, um, testimonials from all four members, obviously archival for Harrison and, and right. Lennon, but contemporary for McCartney and, and Ringo Starr. And, um, there is definitely an echoing notion that they were all really close mm. um, in those early touring years. And then even the, the five or six years that came after they decided we're done with touring. And it really showed the, basically the. So they were uniformed in the idea of none of them were like, no, we, 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 we just still continue. Yeah. They were unanimous. They yeah, all well, pulled the plug at enough. the same time because they absolutely, by the end of it. And obviously what Howard's trying to convey is, is basically how feral it got Mm, um to the point where it really did feel like it was no longer about the music it was about the size spectacle and honestly the ability to act in a slightly anarchist fashion because of that size Mm. um you know and it's quite interesting to think about because you know you're you're looking at it and what they're showing us is is kind of sort of proper real obviously archival footage of what lerman's trying to get across with elvis the this weird sort of juju that they this this band had over women in particular the, right. to make them into this this feral um sort of awakening and obviously mm. it was a you know it's drawing big parallels with how much stuff was happening in the 60s you know what it was like for the beatles to go to america after kennedy had been shot and uh, martin luther king had been shot and how they were you know obviously um had no problem with they would challenge the segregation ideologies of America because mm. they just didn't care because they didn't see that, um, you know, that wasn't that same. That wasn't of, in their hometown. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, okay. There's a lot to like about the doco. I think the archival footage and really capturing this this positive sort of um, brotherhood that these four had is is what it's trying to get. It's almost trying to challenge that notion that, that this perception, this cultural perception that. It all fell apart because they had differing opinions. And right. A lot of the archival footage, although it was obviously your position to respond because of what you're given over versus not what you're given, mm. was, yeah, they were pulling the plug on touring. It's It was um, as a group, but it was because, and you saw it firsthand, you know, people getting injured in these shows. and It really, to the point where it cultivates in this, the biggest ever uh, stadium show, this 50,000-person performance in America, that they had to play over the PA system. Right. <laughs> so then, and you're hearing what people would have heard um, and you're sitting there and then it's in juxtaposed with what's actually being played on the stage at the time because there was a camera on them at the stage. Oh, that's cool. That's 200 metres in field at this baseball park versus what the public's hearing. And you're <laughs> kind of like, well, I can see why they pulled the plug because the music is getting completely lost. Yeah. You're pay- especially, you know, we've, in the last couple of years, with Optus Stadium, a stadium yep. that is not designed for musical performances, mm. there has been that debate where it's, are you paying simply to just say you were at the event? Um, because it's not exactly a musically... And I was, we've come a long way with a lot of our technology, but back then, yeah. 50, 60 years ago, you were just paying to go to a Beatles concert. Mm. Um, and there's an argument to say, you know, with Coldplay that just dropped here, 
Right. A lot of people just bought tickets to say they're going to Coldplay, not because they actually want to see Coldplay. Right, right. So yeah, I've I've definitely seen a little of that. And the other one as well, and this is actually interesting because this is something my sister said in regards to we talked about Taylor Swift a couple of weeks yep. ago and we got her tickets to that. Um where I mean part of the reason it wasn't part of the reason, of course, but I think one of the ideologies in her head was that she can't buy I think it's the Eras tour that Taylor Swift's doing. She can't buy a shirt of that tour until she actually goes to that tour. So it's it, it's also that thing of pride of like I don't want to rep the shirt unless I actually was a part of that event. Yeah. And I, uh, that's like I I get that. I totally respect that. Yeah. And yeah, that kind of goes into the rabbit hole of your right well, what point is is participating in something because you you desperately want to go there and enjoy it or is it part of this wider um image you know, it, the Coachella, all the Instagram influencers got to go to Coachella Absolutely. and take photos of themselves. Yeah. And yeah, that was a big thing this year, especially of, you know, people just want the pi- the picture. Yes. And then they go home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they don't listen to any of the music. Uh, Isn't it? It's, it's crazy. But I definitely think that's what he's trying to convey in the documentary. Mm-hmm. It comes off really well. It cultivates yeah. it. It focuses, yes, on this four-year period. It doesn't focus on... The, it's not a full autobiographical of the Beatles' complete timeline. It's, it's not the Peter Jackson one. No, did more recently. no, no, it's just that that touring years. And oh, obviously, it's really tricky because it's like I said, you just brought up the Peter Jackson one. There mm. are so many different documentaries on this band, so yeah. it's like, which one do you watch? Mm. Um, do you have to watch all of them? And then you've got the most objective opinion because you can decipher it <laughs> the most information. But in terms of presentation, I thought this was a really tight, cool, good 100 minute documentary. Which Very I mean, nice. it's coming from Ron Howard, so you'd expect someone who's right. got his head screwed on to deliver a good product. So. But then on the other end, you've got Peter Jackson. It's what, like a four? It's 471 minutes, but it also has a 4.5 average star rating on Letterbox. So yeah. it's like maybe, you know, Ron Howe could nail like the, the short and succinct version of the story of the Beatles and then Peter Jackson can do like the super detailed, elongated version and, and also receive praise for it. Mm. So it, it's interesting. You know, you, know, you got, yeah, you got the Beatles you got this wonderful icon of music. How do you tell that story? How do you tell their story? And, and do you is, do it succinctly or overly detailed? Yeah, and as we're watching it, you know, Luce is saying, it's like, why hasn't mm. there been the biopic on the Beatles? And I'm like, right. well, two of them are still alive. I wouldn't be surprised if they passed away. How mm. quickly someone jumps at the bit to be like, let's do the Beatles biopic or the biopic series. Um it's gonna happen. It'll it'll probably happen in the next ten years. Yeah, and if if they don't die by then, someone's gonna buy the AI likeness to their <laughs> yeah, oh god, <laughs> to their face. I don't. It's there's two things I want to talk about. Okay, because obviously we had the Emmy nominations a couple yes. of days ago, and there's a lot to be excited about there. Twenty seven nominations for Succession, which is outrageous um kieran colkin for lead actor let's go <laughs> but like in, in to what degree first off it's probably going to get delayed because of the sag after strike mm-hmm. which is probably more important to talk about i would think i would say that yeah i mean i think a precedent was set in the last week mm. um you know we talked about the writers guild Going yes. on strike. That was month a, and the a half Django ago. episode. So exactly ten episodes ago. So there you go. Um, and that was, you know, we sort of talked about the impact, and we talked about the the AI aspect there, and it's it's a 
sort of the demands that we're talking about. A lot mm-hmm. of the demands have been echoed. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the similar issues um, that SAG are having. So, it's a big moment, isn't it? A complete mm. shutdown. Yeah, and that, I mean that's the thing is you, you can kind of get away with things with a writer strike because you, you you know you can you can go ahead and shoot Deadpool three just kind of ad lib, you kind of um, improvisation so to speak, uh, but you can still do that. You can still get your films out there. You can still get promotion for your films, mm-hmm. and a lot of that now that the actors are out of it too, it's like well, you can't write, you can't shoot, you can't promote. There's very little Hollywood can do right now until this is all sorted, and I'm. I mean, look, we were standing in solidarity 10 episodes ago with the writers, and I imagine that that's still this, our case here with the actors. And I actually think this is a great thing because it kind of forces the studios to have to do something now. I mean, yeah. that's that's the whole point of a strike, but it's like, I think the, the Actors Guild has so much more reach and power, even just in terms of numbers, but also just the names of the people. You've got these huge names now. It's definitely the star power aspect. Exactly, yeah. And it's like, we were just saying that, you know, SAG, they have their their leading lady, their voice, you know, the person who's who's standing in the podium saying, I tried to fight for everyone, and, like, this is where we're at now, and we need to do something. And I think it was was Kirstie's dad, I think that, or it might have been, it was someone... Uh, in the family that made a joke of, yeah, that that really does establish the difference between the writers and the actors is one of them has a voice and a, like a, a famous, um, you know, profile standing up for them while the, the writers, <laughs> there kind of wasn't anyone you could point. There was no face to it, no. so to speak. And there kind of is now with SAG. So I think this definitely makes it much more likely that something has to give yeah. As opposed to the original plan, which was just to starve all the writers to death and wait until all their mortgages lapsed and all their they got kicked out of all their apartments and which is absolutely cruel. That 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 is literally the leaked statements from the studios, but um I think yeah, well, well what what's all your thoughts on, on all of this? I think every job has the right to go on strike. Yeah. So we're just seeing an industry go on strike. And mm-hmm. admittedly it's a uh, Obviously, it's a pop cultural industry, so yes. the theatre of it all is, is far more grandiose <laughs> than if the Fisherman's Wharf, the Harbourman, decided to go on <laughs> on strike. Yeah. Or um, and it's true. It, it's one of those things that um, the demands are very reasonable. Yep. This is an industry that it's weird because you know we're two guys who have at one point in time when we were a, a younger person. Mm a teenager we both sat there and went i want to make movies Mm. and those who would have say we turned 18 and we got on that plane to hollywood we're sitting there right now we're probably in that Mm. strike yeah if we did really well to a point um which is (laughs) well if we got into one of the guilds exactly exactly if we're successful enough then we're now on a picket fence line Mm. and I think at the end of the day, these are people that all they ever wanted to do was create stuff. Yeah. They wanted to create visions, ideas, uh, generate conversations. And there are often that 1% or less than 1% who have just hoarded wealth. Mm. Um, and I was talking about, she said, obviously that's a far, that's a different, it's not a financial sure. aspect that's using um, sort of your power for sexual, um, provoking sexual favors, and and obviously 
that man got was coming to him. Mm. But it is quite crazy to think people like you know Disney CEO who is sitting oh, yeah, on Bob Iger, yeah. who is making these statements from billion dollar ranches. It just <laughs> it's it's baffling. Yeah. the the ivory tower is so it's like Lord Business in the five thousandth yeah. level in in the Lego Movie where it's just so it, it it's it's comical it really is and I and the, there is a part of me that understands how this shift has happened from especially for TV just broadcast TV to streaming and how that's the majority yeah. of the stuff we consume is now streaming and is paid not through ads although in some cases like i guess prime there are ads included but yep. we look to netflix which i think is the only one that's actually been in the game long enough that they are now turning a profit through their streaming market because it takes 10 to 15 years to even do that so everyone else disney and they're all playing catch up they are losing money on streaming so i understand the argument of it's harder to give them residuals that reflect the pay they got from broadcast mm. residuals and that they're going from twelve hundred dollars, or sorry, twelve thousand dollar checks to four cent checks, which is absolutely, and it's been happening in music as well with Spotify and everything. Yeah. Like that whole argument's been had, but that all kind of goes away when you look, like you said, to Bob, the Bob Igers of the world, and and how many millions of dollars they make per year, yeah, on top of bonuses, their net worths, and it's like, well. <laughs> where's it, where's it? it goes back and to that comical evilness the, of it all the the true reality of it is is we are going to see if this continues for an elongated period of time six months we will see then the next year of projects either not happen mm. or be god awful like <laughs> um i mean they made that joke about with deadpool 3 the fact that x-men origins wolverine came out uh, uh, yeah, so time that time it makes sense. <laughs> so God knows we might get Deadpool, get Ryan Reynolds with a, a muzzled mouth again. Well, it's, um, it's just this stuff that reminds you, like the fact that this is all a big, big business, and there's yep. a lot of money involved. And you know, you you talk about the the theoretical world where we're literally in the picket lines in LA ourselves, but it's like this does have ripple effects. And there are people who worked on on our film on Skin and Blister that are literally affected by this strike because uh, Sam Neill's just up the road shooting a show mm. and you got um, Tegan who did you know production design on the film who just lost work because he's part of SAG, of course. So it's like this does have a ripple effect all the way even here in WA. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's interesting. Fit too right, too right. I mean, at the end of the day, we've... They've all got to stand in unison. Like every, like I said, every industry has the right to strike if they feel like their working conditions are not fair. Um, and what I find really interesting is, like you said, it, the streaming stuff definitely mm. intrigues me. Um, that it takes so long, yeah, to turn that profitable model. But the fact that no one identified this earlier on mm. or, or no one did anything about it found a way to sort of moderate that income to avoid this thing happening is kind of crazy because streaming platforms have been uh, the epicenter of, of how we consume media for at least the last three or four years, mm. maybe longer, maybe five or six years. Um, so it was very interesting to me to uh, think that no one thought, oh, maybe we need to address the fact that, <laughs> like you said, they're going from $12,000 checks to four cents. I mean, yeah. that's a big gap. Yeah, no, it's an absolute annihilation of, of how the majority of actors and writers and everybody involved in this business make money in their off time because that's what this business is. And, you know, for every person online, and I really have to restrain myself in these Facebook threads of, of people who 
they're just like, well, who cares? You know, the just actors, they're all rich. You know, they're all selfish and, and greedy. And, and it's so tough to communicate the reality, which is, you're right, it's less than 1% of the SAG after members are actually on, like, a livable wage or are rich. Yeah. <laughs> and the vast majority of them get maybe a couple of gigs a year that sure sound it's like, oh they made a couple of grand off a couple of days work that's fantastic but how many other days do they work during yeah. the year not very many and most of them rely on these residuals not only to live but to get past the very low threshold for healthcare which is like less than $25,000 i think for the year it's it's truly wild yeah. to think about and it really it really makes you happy sometimes that you're you know not in that direct sort of correlation but you don't yeah. want anyone but like you said, it's this this disillusionment that we that some people have, where they think, "Oh, well, they see the the one percent doing really well, and they think that's everyone." But yeah. it's, in reality, it's it's only a very few people that that get by, and it's so weird on this particular week coming up, and we'll talk about what what's coming out this week. But yeah, um, it's crazy to see you know these big epic films mm. that are going to be coming out. Um, and obviously last week we had Mission Impossible coming out. Yes. So it's, you know, they're, they're massive films that have dropped right now. And to see that, well, I wonder if what we'll get this time next year, will there be anything coming I'm, out? I'm so time? curious you're right about this immediately because the whole thing is the strike is happening within a part where Hollywood can sort of claim that they are struggling. You look at films like The Flash and Indiana Jones, which we covered last week, doing not only abysmally at the box office, but abysmally next to a stupid a budget. And like I look at, we're about to talk about Little Miss Sunshine, a film that apparently cost $8 million to make and made more than 10 times that amount back. And then you look at something like The Flash and, and Dial of Destiny, which cost two to $300 million. Mm. And I was like, they're not going to make that back. Are you kidding me? Because you've got to double that for marketing and then cut that in half for the theatrical so- take. So what, what happens, what happens to streaming platforms? Do, do we scrap streaming platforms? I think there is a chance. And this is me thinking of like, where do we go from here in terms of if this really is untenable? And it feels untenable. It really does. Is we have to go back to a new age. We have to go back to the late 60s and early 70s when big Hollywood blockbusters were just crumbling and falling apart. And distribution was different then. I guess you could sort of refer to TV as like the new thing. Yeah, you're referring... Being able to watch entertainment. But like roadshow pictures disappeared at the end of the 60s. Sure, sure. But then you have your new wave uh, sort of films come in, The Graduate and Easy Rider. And then obviously we get into the era we talked about a couple weeks ago with George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola. There's a chance that that all happens and like we kind of reset the clock, which would be awesome. Because I think it is time for that, and you could look at the westerns versus the superheroes. These are these analog. are films that are under that banner of they are staying in cinemas; they're not going to streaming platforms. Exactly. There's yeah. not this the two weeks in the cinema to get the Oscar nom, mm. putting them out on a streaming platform. There's the honestly, there's the James Cameron way of keeping Way of Water in cinema for as that's the notion you're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, going just going back to that, it, I think. Mean, we have these big, 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 big blockbusters that cost so much that these companies have to put them in cinemas only because you can't pay them off with a $9 subscription fee to Disney Plus or whatever the case. Yeah. Even though they kind of try to do that during COVID, I don't think it worked very well. But those are all failing because we're just frankly sick of all this IP. Who really, truly, truly wanted to... Let's go and watch The Flash. 
Let's like that. Like I don't think that many people really want to. I think it's over. I think we're all desperate and starved. For frankly, films like Little Miss Sunshine, these mid-tier budget films. I see what you mean now. Yeah, yeah that, the like, everything everywhere all at once. Exactly, and and that film destroyed the box office, crushed it, and and it didn't cost very much to make at all. So I think there's that combination where we, we need to start putting more of these mid-budget, smaller indie films in theaters as opposed to these giant, giant, giant gambles. And I know The Flash and Indiana Jones don't sound like gambles, but it evidently they are because they're making no money. Yeah. And when it comes to streaming, we've we've uh, popularized and normalized this idea that we can get these giant high-budget shows and movies just on our $9 subscription service. And I think the way through potentially is just to abandon that for Paramount plus to just ax everything for Disney plus to just ax the streaming service. And I don't think they will because that would just be a, like a financial disaster, but the uproar too. And yeah, but I think potentially something has to give. And I think that might be it. Well, I think at the end of the day, like you said, there has to be that hard decision there. And, and, if Netflix, that the problem is that if they're not financially viable, why are mm. we keeping them? And and to be honest, you know, I'm looking at your wall right now of DVDs, and mm. it's a beautiful. What wall. you've done <laughs> at the end of the day is the the rule is really simple: you buy a DVD for twenty bucks, but you own it mm. forever. Yeah, it's the contract. It's the it's that physical aspect to it, and um, we'll probably see streaming platforms introduce probably more of those advertising packages oh well for 7.99 a month you still get ads every 30 minutes mm. essentially you're basically paying for a cable tv basically yeah. at that point but um that might be the the middle ground we'll just mm. see more and more extreme advertising i mean youtube's gotten to a point where it doesn't an ad what every four minutes it's something it's getting atrocious these yeah. youtube ads they really are but but you know it's that's the name of the game yeah, and... I think Wisecrack just did a video on advertising, which was really insightful. Okay, well, that might but, be worth it. Because, yeah. like you said, something needs to break. I mean, we need to definitely uh, decongest that market. Mm. Paramount Plus should go. Um, <laughs> a lot of them should go. They should. A lot of them should go. And, and frankly, yeah, it, there's no real point in holding on to all of these these platforms if they're not going to if it's going to lead to stuff like this or mm. there needs to be a way to find financial compensation for all parties involved yeah because you know like you said for these big executives to go well we're not making money on the streaming services either okay then who are they for yeah. like who well are that, they f- that's it they're the ones that made the choice they collectively chose to go down this more digital age approach to film distribution but then it's the writers and the actors and, and all the lower people low in the food chain of big hollywood mm. that have to suffer they don't get residuals anymore they get asked to do one day's work get their face scanned and, and never receive compensation ever again for their likeness Crazy. it's absolutely insane it's baffling it is baffling um it'll be interesting to see the one in 2007, 2008 lasted, what, eight, nine months? So mm. it'll be interesting to see... How long this one goes for. And that was only a, well, that was only writers, wasn't it, at that time? Yep. So imagine what's going to happen now. You've got your two two of your pillars of your industry mm. that have given out. Okay. So eight, nine months had that impact 
on yeah, imagine what this would imagine what three four months of two two of your pillars being mm. out of the game this so. is the first um joint strike between the two unions since 1960 that's a long time so that's that's a, that's a, a different age there's a completely different age and almost lines up with that new age cinema we were talking about the late 60s so yeah well it to be, be honest it, it's you're 100% right we're so over this this they're beating a dead horse these mm. franchises the the age of the franchise has gone and yeah. we talked about it on Dial of Destiny we've talked about it with multiple Marvel films we're done we're yeah. just done with these massive entities um and it's like making these stupid series these disney series that are ridiculous the loki's the all the yeah. moon knights which they've that. admitted now bob Iger said like oh we probably shouldn't have done that <laughs> oversaturated the market they're just crap they're just yeah. they're just they're they're crap they're i mean this was the first time i think i returned to disney plus in the last week mm. but it for god knows how long not be, and i'm not like I had multiple friends on the weekend being like, "Oh, are you excited for Ahsoka?" No, I don't care. I don't that care. Come, when is that coming? Out? I think it's this week or next week. It's oh. like some. It's coming up. But yeah. I haven't watched a Star Wars property in so long. I, I don't care. Yeah, you've it's actually so made me stop caring about things like Star Wars or yeah. things like Lord of the Rings or things like like I don't care about them. I want to watch something new and stimulating. And but different. Zeke, are you not excited for the uh, new Star Wars spinoff, Zibzob? 37 episodes. Uh, look, I wasn't My favorite character excited about Zip-Zop. anything, but now Zibzob came out. <laughs> or the droid that looks like a traffic cone. <laughs> Wee! Yeah. That guy. That's what the show's called. Wee! <laughs> Just, and we spent suck. $30 million per minute, per episode, per season. Yeah. They just suck. It's just <laughs> crap. There's so much crap. Why did Dial and Destiny cost three hundred million dollars? Well, where was it? Like, what? what why? Where was the money? I actually thought it felt like the most low budget Indiana Jones. <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> there were just weird parts of it, yeah. which felt like there were no one in the in the scenes. That felt like it was almost shot in COVID times. Like that, that only could have must ten have people been, yeah. in the scenes. Yeah, it's weird. It's just, oh goodness, it's a weird film. Like, it's just it's all sterile. It's all. I, I think Hollywood's completely lost track of what... And this is... you know It's not even that, because you could say that they lost track of what the public is interested in, but the fact of the matter is they announced 50 million Star Wars shows and 50 million Marvel shows how many years ago, and it's going to take them 15 bloody years to release all that content. Yeah. And what are they going to do if by the fourth year people have lost interest? It's like, oh, crap, we've already spent billions of dollars on this franchise. But it's like, say right now, I wake up, and I've got a son or a daughter, and they love. <laughs> they love. Bear with me. They love. <laughs> so like you wake up all of a sudden. Yeah, it appears. Ten year old son. <laughs> they like, and they're like, "Oh, Dad, from? I like Spider Man, or yeah. I like Thor, or I like Captain America, or I like Princess Bloody Leia, or something." Yeah. It's. I have so many things I can show them now. Yeah. I don't need anything new. Like, the kid does right. not need anything else. Yeah. Like, every kid at some point loves Spider-Man. I know yeah. you've got a good Spider-Man I love, story. I, I love, I love <laughs> Spider-Man. Um, and it's like, okay, cool, there's six. I'll show them 
the the Tom Holland one first, and then I'll show them when they get a little bit older. I'll show them the Andrew Garfield ones, and then the Tobey Maguire ones, and then I'll show them the movie where they're all together. Would you actually go backwards? I don't know. I don't, I haven't thought about it that much. <laughs> they get older. They start playing video games. You can just show them the bloody. That's where we should be putting all of these franchise properties right. into the video games, into the world where most of us, you know, who don't really care that much, don't have to go near them. But the mm. people that really care about them can enjoy them. Well, you, you can make that argument film and television as well, but it do, it is very in your face because, again, these things cost so much money, they have to shove it down your throat. Yeah. They have to make sure you know about it and you're excited to watch it. But it's like, you know, I hate that I went and saw... What did I go see the other day? Um, oh, when I went and saw Indiana you? Jones. That we're, yeah. we're in the, the credits and, and Lucinda turns to me and goes, oh, should we wait for an after credit scene? <laughs> Oh no! And I'm like, oh, I don't think it'll be in this kind of movie. But we still have to wait until the cr- the scroll happened. Not for was it? Was it just the sound effect of the whip? Is that all that comes over the end? I don't know. What kind of, it was just the music died and it switched to the oh, the end of credit. But it, it's just like stupid. Like I yeah, the way that. we've been indoctrinated by certain yeah yeah. I just hate it. I just and I hate that it's a bunch of people. Despite we're in this era where movies have apparently made the most money they've ever made mm. that we now have two of those seminal pillars on strike because they got paid nothing yeah where did that money go yeah well we we know whose pockets those yeah. went to <laughs> he's at the billionaire retreat right now yeah the snake oil salesman at the top you know what george lucas did the smartest <laughs> thing ever he sold lucas arts and he's just sitting on his ranch with all there his money go. he earned it he didn't Happy. exploit anyone he's yeah he's yeah. doing well Exactly. Respect George. Yeah, rant over. My um, Okursi's dad sent. I asked him for a list because he 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 loves talking about classic movies, and I said, "Send me a list of ten, yeah, ten films you think I should watch." And he sent me ten very great films. Only one I had seen up until that point was American Graffiti. I was like, ah, he's a big car guy. That's why loves the cars. The yeah, movie. it's a big part of that film. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. great. No, I just for me, I, I it's that's it's such a tragic state of the world. But mm. more power to people walking off red carpet appearances and yeah, well that's the big one, isn't it? They are not allowed to promote any of their work. So the big Oppenheimer walkout, yeah, at the UK premiere, crazy, insane. But I love I love that Nolan's like, good on ya. But you know he wasn't been, upset. But you know what's it. been interesting is how little. I've been watching mainstream media. Mm. Yeah, we're gonna, you know, we brought up Succession with its twenty-seven noms. That's yes. great. Yes, but it's that controlling the narrative. How many mainstream medias mm. are not really giving it a lot of attention? It doesn't feel like it gets a lot of attention. It's all on. Oh my God, Barbie and Oppenheimer are coming out this week, right? And they're playing archival promotion stuff now. Interesting. Not yeah. contemporary promotional stuff. Well, almost every single, like, news story, you know, if you go on, not necessarily Fox, but, like, all these different, like, American news outlets that do a five-minute piece on the strike, almost all of them start with just a disclaimer. We're owned by one of the companies that's a part of the other team of the strike and blah, blah, blah. There's always that disclaimer. So, it's... It is... There's always a bias. Yeah. There's always a bias. You gotta watch it is out crazy. Because you have to really, really look for it. Like, I asked... I was just chatting to a couple of friends and i was like man it's crazy like there's just it, movies have just stopped right now and they're yeah. like what do you mean and i'm like well this and this and you have to explain it to them right so they've heard about it yeah yeah because you know we're obviously invested in in 
this industry. We sure. care about this and industry. And it comes up on our feeds and everything. Yeah, yeah of course. So our algorithms are lined up with that. But yep. I was just looking through, yeah, Channel 9, Channel 10. Barely any mention. Interesting, yeah. I feel like there was something on TV, on free to air TV. Yeah. I could be wrong. I'm not remembering properly. But no, this is a big deal. And like you said, this does affect workforces around the world. It does because yeah. as you know, as much as we love to think that Hollywood you know, glitz and glam and who cares doesn't affect the real world, it does because it's all economics. Yeah. And it's all relevant and all these other businesses across the world are gonna look to the outcome of this strike and it's gonna it it's gonna inform them as well and what they do in the future. Absolutely. So this is interesting stuff, it's very important stuff. And again, we're in solidarity with SAG. With the WGA, let's hope this all works out in the end and people are fairly paid. Mm. So, we'll see. We'll see how it goes, Zeke. Otherwise, it's going to be a Napoleonic uprising. (laughs) You're so keen. I am. Joaquin, I'm keen, Phoenix. So, I think that's what Ridley Scott does best is those, like, period epics. Yeah, well, like, you look look at his last two films, Last Duel and um, House of Gucci. It's like, well, one was far better than the other yeah so it looks like you're right he's sticking to that period piece epic form yeah because i think he puts the time into it too there's a genuine a genuine historical investment in those Mm -hmm. narratives and i couldn't think of a better person to play napoleon i couldn't think of a better historical story to tell than wonka yeah uh is it (laughs) it's a was it look up and listen down or like Something like that. I don't know that I was in the trailer. I don't know. I, it, I didn't watch it. It's properly. so weird. It feels like <laughs> they were like, "Oh, the Burton stuff was too weird, but the Wilder stuff's too creepy." So we're just going to make <laughs> Timothy Chalamet weirdly kind of sarcastically light, right? He's got a little bit of both in him. Yeah, and then um, he looks like he's on the bloody Polar Express. He's just like <laughs> so excited. There was that shot of him like twirling around the light post. And yeah. he's just floating. And it's like, I know it's Willy Wonka, but should he literally be floating? Yeah. Is that a bit... Mu- he makes chocolate, guys. The chocolate mafia, Zeke. That's it. They're coming for him. <laughs> I actually kind of like the present. Uh, pre- um, it kind of feels like almost uh, a live-action version of what Fantastic Mis- Mr. Fox was trying to do. Ah, so, yeah, it's interesting you put it that way. But, but it'll, the art, like, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the artistic direction. Yeah. It was a little too whimsical for me, but maybe... It was the most Disney-esque trailer that Warner Brothers ever done, because it starts with that piano key. Yeah. And it just gets more and more and more and more epic as it goes along. And, yeah, like you said, whimsical. Yeah. In the same way that the, all the Star Wars trailers were exactly the same. The Indiana Jones trailer was exactly the same. Whimsical light piano key that kind of turns into the theme music, but doesn't. You know, <laughs> they're all the same. It's got, it's got all, all the same. We'll so see. Napoleon's my more keen one. Fair enough. I am very. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon looks incredible. That's up there. But I mean, hey, we're we're so close, Zeke. We're so close to two excellent, excellent, exciting films this summer. But we'll, we'll get to them soon enough. Yeah. Hey, look, the road trip's long and arduous especially following all of these strikes. Who knows where we'll be by the end of this trip. But before then, let's move into our <laughs> film of the week. It's also the director's corner. Jake, who are the directors and what are we watching? So the directors we're covering this week, Zeke. Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris and their wonderful, wonderful little film, Little Miss Sunshine. Olive? 
Dinner in 10 minutes. Dwayne, can you check on Frank? Tell him it's dinner time. Why, you don't talk anymore? You can talk, you just choose not to. Is that Nietzsche? You don't speak because of Friedrich Nietzsche. Far out. What's that, chicken? Every night is chicken. Dad. Holy God almighty. Is it possible just once Dad. we could get something to eat for dinner around here that's not the damn chicken? Hey, Dad. I'm just saying. Dad. How did it happen? How did what happen? Your accident. <clears throat> Uncle Frank didn't really have an accident. He tried to kill himself. Why? I wanted to kill myself because I was He's very sick. unhappy. He's a sick man. He's a sick in his head now. Richard. I don't think it's an appropriate conversation for a seven-year-old. Well, she's going to find out anyway. Okay. I fell in love with someone who didn't love me back. Who? One of my grad students. I was very much in love with him. Him? You fell in love with the boy? Very much so. That's silly. There's another word for that. There is a message on the machine. Something about little Mrs. Sunshine. Little Miss Sunshine? Yeah. What? Remember when Olive was runner-up in the regional Little Miss Sunshine? That's the girl who won had to forfeit her crown. I don't know why, something about diet pills, but anyway. Now she has a place in the state contest in Redondo. A family loaded with quirky, colourful characters piles into an old van and road trips to California f- for little Olive to complete in a beauty pageant. To little compete. Olive. A little Olive. Little Olive. <laughs> little fun Olive. I. It's been quite a while since I've seen this film, and um, I did. I feel bad because I didn't. I didn't really catch much else of Jonathan Dayton and, and Valerie Farris's other films. Although I forgot that they had did Living with Yourself, the show with Paul Rudd, which I did watch way right. back when. Um. So I've seen a, a few of their things, but. Rewatching this film for the first time in what three and a half years? Yes. There is that part of me that's like, is it as good as I remember? Oh, please God, be as good as I remember. And it's... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this film's phenomenal. It's, it's so beautiful. It's so like it was like we alluded to earlier. The tonal shift. It's a very dark comedy, mm. but it's also just very inspirational. I mean. Yeah, I, I don't even know where to begin with this film. Z, 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 take it from here, because I need to <laughs> digest well, this film. you know, obviously, we were talking about that this film is, you know, it's, it's got such a star-studded cast, but a, a, almost like uh, a cast that, really looking back on it, is, it would be considered star-studded, but at mm. the context of the time, maybe not. I mean, yeah. obviously, Alan Arkin's been around for a long time at this. He's probably one of the bigger names in it. Sure. Greg Kinnear is in... You know, this, that, and the other. I, I honestly can't remember another film. I've seen Greg Kinnear and stuff, but I can't think of something off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's sort of the ironic thing of his casting. Like you said, it re- you can really only appreciate it after the fact. It was not intentional because Abigail Breslin, this is like her, you know, big shining light moment of her coming out. And then Paul Dano, the, we look back on Paul Dano's career and almost everything we love him for is uh, is succeeds Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, I, I think Tony Collette would be up there as well in terms of she had done some Muriel's Wedding, of course, and yeah, tons of other things. Um, and then we talked about Steve Carell earlier. A lot of them, yeah, you're right, were very early in their careers, and it was just such a beautiful merging. I love that Greg Kinnear, upon reflection, 
as like the the main the family man the main mm. unit that the family or is should be guided by in yeah. terms of the the stereotypical family he's, and dynamic arguably the, is the protagonist of the film exactly is also like kind of the least known actor here yeah in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah i love that it is a, a truly uh, after the fact that yeah a yeah. fantastically cast film i mean tony collette let's just give her the title she's queen of the indies any film <laughs> queen of the con- indies yes any any film that's considered slightly niche or, or quirky it's like <laughs> it's gonna have tony collette in it and she's gonna be amazing yeah um oh, but it's beautiful it is you know it's it's such a great road trip film i mean i think a lot of films have who sort of are talking about this like this nobody's perfect narrative mm. um are modeled after obviously this 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 film i think uh, i think um i think of a few off the top of my head are like paddleton and stuff like that where mm. it's got that comedic aspect to it but it's underpinned by darker more sadly real aspects of life sure, um yeah. That creep into the story. Yeah, and, and I mean, of course, this this film doesn't harsh away from um, drug use or suicidal thoughts mm. and um, the imperfections of every member of this, this very quirky, imperfect family mm. that is obviously uh, shrouded by, like we were talking about with Kinnear's character of Richard, um, who is trying to get a, a self-help sort of <laughs> program off the ground, ironically, and... Yep. Um, is well, disillusioned by uh, uh, the concept of winners and losers. Yeah, well, that that's it. Like you said, the the main unit of the family, the dad of the family, like you said, the protagonist, he's the one that when we first introduced him at the start of the film, he's the one with a very binary idea of, of who's a winner and who's a loser. And then that has a, a real negative effect across the rest of the family and then how they perceive winners and losers and... I guess he would probably have the biggest character arc of the film. Yeah. Even though it's all very joint, like it's all very much about the family unit coming together. And we see that multiple times, like the opening montage is all of them doing their own thing. And and we'll get into that, how brilliant the way they introduce characters is. Uh, Or the first time we see them in the van, uh, excellent little needle drop with Chicago in there. But then they're all doing their own things, you know. Um, Dwayne's reading the book and Olive's got her music and her headphones on and, and that's all juxtaposed later in the film when they're much they're a much tighter family unit mm. communicating together. So it all works on that front, but I think he purely because you're right, he's very clearly the guy with the binary view on winners and losers has the yeah. biggest character arc. Yeah. Um and a hundred percent, I mean, what it is, you know, we we start the film with, with Olive, you know, fixated mm. on on a TV screen, this sort of surrogate parent for yeah. um, an upcoming, you know, generation, and um, that's sort of the I think the notions that are trying to come across there is the fact that we often, you know, both their parents are so caught up in in their own lives, obviously yep. that the, the the TV and and now. Um, our iPhones, our iPads have become mm. that surrogate parent that we always talk about. We all say we'd never be that parent that enables that, you know, use that technology to bridge that gap, but mm. it often creeps in and, you know, she's completely uh, fascinated by this pageant contest and yeah. this universe being crowned. Mimicking the actions and the facial yeah. expressions and everything. Yeah, and what we're seeing there is, is something that still has echoing resonance now i mean it's the television has just been replaced with 
with TikToks, with influencers, mm. the Instagram culture, this exceeding uh, cultural fascination with ourselves and how we look physically and present ourselves is, is as a winner. I mean, being a teacher, it's it's always so... It, it's quite difficult. I'm obviously still learning how to sort of communicate effectively, but it's very weird. You know, we, mm. we live in a world now where people like horrible role models in quotations, which this film challenges the role sure, model motion. Yeah. Um, I mean, people like Andrew Tate and stuff who are just like <laughs> this make money fast. And, and yeah, we, we, you know, as 20 somethings now we can look at that man and go, that is not a good role model. Sure. But, but there's a lot of people that do look cool. But then there are the 13, model. 14 year olds who think, Oh, well he's fit. He's got a lot of money. Um, and he just has all of these ideas mm. and that's just the beauty pageant on the television box, but instead it's in a reel, um, on a kid's phone. Yeah. Well, they're kind of, cause I didn't even think about it from that aspect that the technological aspect, which I think really only applies in the very opening scene, but yes. it does, but it does inform the entire rest of the story in terms of, we know Olive's motivation mm. because we start the film in her head with those extreme close-ups in her eyes and the reflection of the tv but you're right you could take you could set this film in the 50s and you could it, it still works because you still have the television box that's beginning to raise the children or a much more contemporary approach like you said with with tiktok and the phone and everything yeah so it, it becomes universal in that way it's that thing where it's you know and we get it all deconstructed everything looks beautiful and fantastical on the television box in oliver's perspective we watch the reel that is edited and meticulously mm. compiled and then you see videos of people videoing people trying to create reels and they're like picking up rubbish in a trash bag and then leaving the trash bag after <laughs> they've shot the reel you know <laughs> it's that complete de deconstruction of this subjective reality but yeah the fact is that the young developing minds take it as a matter of fact and and that's sort of the the aspect that she gets so obsessed with and why alan arkin's character is so important mm. as this generational voice of, of reason um who obviously grew up in a world where the, the television wasn't the precipice and i think that's the point there but it's he's he's completely imperfect but he's so comfortable in himself yeah well that's uh, the great juxtaposition with with his character with edwin is that he is the stereotypical angry grumpy loud homophobic sailor mouthed grandpa but that he has so many moments where he actually he kind of goes against that stereotype character where he when he talks to his son and said well you know you tried and that does make you a winner or when he's talking to olive and such a beautiful scene where he's he's comforting her and, and telling her about you know you're a winner because you're trying and you know you're the most beautiful girl in the world i forget the exact line he uses but that great juxtaposition of a grandpa who's introduced to it. And, and it, the first thing we see is him snorting <laughs> heroin. So yeah. it's, was well, it would have been Coke. would have been Coke. They said it was heroin in the, yes, the age care thing. And then, yep. Gotcha. Um, so in terms of showing us that this is the upfront view of the grandpa stereotype character. And then throughout the story, we see those glimpses of just the fact that he's willing, not only willing, but completely motivated by teaching his granddaughter striptease moves for her beauty pageant contest. <laughs> yeah. It's very fascinating. I think the characters, the writing in this film, and it's such a shame that 
this is going to feel a lot more like a writer's corner than a director's corner because this the writing of this film is so important. Yeah. And it's not even just the way they set up characters. I mean, you look at the opening montage where it's like you see you see Dwayne, he's ticking off 400 days in his calendar and doing his reps and he's all quiet. Um, of course, we introduced to Frank, much more melancholy, silent after what we learned, what he attempted prior to that scene. Just the way it introduces all these characters is so clever. But even the dialogue that succeeds it in the kitchen as they're all prepping for dinner. Mm. There's nothing overly special about the majority of that dialogue where a lot of it's like, oh, can you grab the chicken and can you set the plates and, oh, dinner will be ready. Like, oh, yeah, we'll be five more minutes with the rehearsal. And there's, there's so much dialogue that just feels kind of, it's this there yeah. to serve that. But really, it's giving you a very clear and quick indication of these characters and who they are and how they interact together. Yeah. Which is so important for when they go on the road trip it only takes 20 minutes to establish the characters their dynamic and get them on the road like it's so yeah. brilliant and succinct so I, I mean the writing of this film is phenomenal yeah and i mean it, it's to its strength i mean not to take away from that direction aspect i think that like you said there are there's a lot of intellect in the blocking of scenes yes. and how um certain people are positioned inside the van when the, mm. the van is moving um and there are some really good just performances but you know and the like I said taking those gambles on some some of those casting is is huge yeah given the time and place and you know obviously less than two years later all of those casting choices were completely justified yeah um it's, it's similar to scott pilgrim yeah that's another film where you're like wow look at the cast they had and the timing of the casting yeah yeah so it wasn't like it was it was just before the floodgates opened really yeah um could argue something like Gerwig's Little Women uh, mm. has about what three female leads in that that all basically blossom post Little Women um but it, it's quite interesting um because yeah I think that's the through line narrative and you're talking about you know with Steve Carell's character who who's suicidal he's attempted yep. suicide and how quick um Kinnear is to dismiss that yeah because that is almost like the confession of of, of an ultimate loser yeah in his sort of self-help uh, grandizing and grandiose egotistical way of looking mm. at things well that that is the exception to that rule of just like your typical kitchen dialogue is yeah. when that situation is brought up when young olive asks oh what happened to your hands why did you try and kill yourself that's the exception to the rule. That's when we get the true insight into their character dynamics. And this here's a taboo subject. How are all of these characters going to react mm. to this subject matter? And you have some that are surprisingly open about it, some who are very dismissive of it or are trying to shut down the conversation entirely. It tells you everything you need to know about all of those characters in that moment. Yeah, and it's really good because... You know, you are setting that that precedent, and obviously, before you know it, you're on the road, and yeah. you're you're sort of getting to know all of these characters, and basically stripping back all of their flaws, uh, and all of them over gradually. I think over the the progression of that journey, are, are learning to either love them. They met with that challenge and that real confrontation of mm. what their flaw is, whether it's a physical disability or it's a um, an emotional state of mind or um, just like I said, being completely uh, misconceived about the information and the, the teachings of a fake reality mm. and having that being challenged by someone who is saying all the complete opposite. Um, and what I love as well about once we've set off on the journey is that 
especially the first half, there's very few moments, if ever, where the actual road trip itself, they very quickly in the dialogue at the, at the kitchen table, all right, here's the reason that every single character needs to go on this journey. It's like, oh, well, maybe Dwayne can stay with Frank, but that's too much of a responsibility since he's only 15 years old. Oh, well, um, you know, why does Ewan have to, Edwin have to go, but he's the one that taught her the choreography. He wants to go. They kind of get that all out of the way. So then when we're on the trip, there's very little reason for them to stop the yeah. trip. Even when um, Richard's deal goes wrong over the phone or, or all of these different scenarios come up or the, the van starts breaking down or falling apart, you never feel like, oh, the, there's a threat that the trip's going to end. Yeah. And even when it gets to that point, when we get into the more spoilery second half of the... Well, let, let's just jump into, I guess, spoilers right now. Yeah. The big one is that, of course, I guess the midpoint of the film is Edwin dying. Yeah. surprisingly <laughs> which is i mean obviously it comes off this beautiful scene with alan arkin which is probably the scene that got him his oscar win for this film and i love that scene because those are the two oscar nominated actors is is him and abigail breslin mm. in the one scene together and obviously now that he has passed away it's extra sad how that plays out in the film but even upon his death and even all the things that play out afterwards especially with um, Dwayne learning about him being colorblind and what that means for his future. Yeah, these things don't threaten to stop the trip. What they do is threaten to separate the family apart because oh well, you know we still want to go on this trip, but maybe these characters can stay with the dead body. Maybe these characters can stay with Dwayne in the bush. Mm. And it's always, it's always at the, at the end of that little mini uh, dramatic arc is them all still coming back into the van together and going on the trip. So I love that that is sort of the the consistent <clears throat> threat to the story is not that the trip's going to end, but that they're going to be separated at different points yeah. throughout the trip, and I just think that's really clever. Which that's the whole point is is that, we're, that despite all of these trials and tribulations, mm. some way somehow this family starts to become more and more like a unit. Yes, um, and this is that. Uh, unspoken bond that you do have always with your family to an mm. extent. And, um, you know, this was the deconstruction of that nuclear family, um, archetype, mm. obviously, um, which is thrown out very early on. And then we find <laughs> that, yeah, there's that, that, um, all of these people are just imperfect, but still just people. Yeah. And that's fine. And the fact that they embrace each other for their weaknesses, they're there to console each other when they all lose something. Cause yeah. everything gets, everyone has something taken away from them. Yes. In this, uh, in this film, obviously it's a spectral range. Some <laughs> lose their lives and then some just lose the ability to uh, a dream that is completely crushed. In yeah. fact, you could argue everyone's dreams is it is crushed in one way or another. Exactly. Um, right. And that could really in another film could come off quite pessimistic and mm. doom and gloom, but this film has this innate way of, of preserving a sense of hope. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. It's because it, at the end of every little scene and every little arc, it comes back to unity and yes. that they're all still together. And that even though there's an off screen, argument that's had between the couple it never gets to that point where you're worried about their relationship or about the effect on their family yeah. it's, it's quite tame almost and then it leads to a more comical scene where Richard's like I'm going to go and solve this and he, he can't get the van started properly so he borrows his little scooter and so it, I feel like the stakes never get to that stage where you're worried about 
every like the the worlds within these characters are all crumbling but the the collective family world is only unifying more and more and that yeah that's visualized and physically manifested by scenes where they, they have to push the van together and it's just it's like an rv <laughs> situation with robin williams see that this could have been the rv robin williams yeah could you imagine i know if, if he had if he actually been cast in this film but i just love all those little nods and and to that point i think my favorite moment in the film there's a quite a few like emotional moments in this film for me but the one that speaks out the most and it's not it's not highlighted it's not made very obvious but it's the moment when they finally arrive at the building and they're obviously right at the end of the deadline. Yep. And who is it, out of all these characters, who is it that is sprinting headfirst into the building that has this, the most determined to get there in time? It's the character who, at the start of the film, had nothing to live for. And it's it's Steve Carell's character who's, more than anyone, sprinting to that. And I love just that little elongated scene of like seeing him down the hallway and a couple of shots of him just sprinting. It it makes me emotional because I'm like, wow, he's found, yeah. even just for this moment, he's found a purpose in life again and it is revolved around family. And like, yeah, every Hollywood film in the world ultimately does revolve around family. Every, you know, low budget, mm. dramatic family drama. But this is the deconstruction, like, the yeah. deconstructing the, the imperfection every mm. character has innate flaws and, yeah um that makes it hyper realistic mm. for the viewer that you know every character like we said has a dream crushed um yeah. and some have such absolute mindsets at the start that get completely challenged deconstructed and rebuilt mm. as something else by yeah. the end of the film um, I guess when you put it like that, they're all ultimately motivated by making sure that little Olive's dreams aren't crushed. Yeah, because she's the she's the youngest and the most innocent. She's just the nicest too, <laughs> isn't she? Well, that that that's kind of like the whole film is is a uh, a giant analog to the little scene that is the ice cream scene, where you have the one character that's crushing. I mean, that's it right there, crushing her dreams by, you know, she wants ice cream. And Richard's saying, like, well, ice cream will make you fat. And those girls on the television that you love, are they skinny or are they fat? That's him almost attempting to crush her dreams because of his very binary view on what winners and losers are. And what's so wholesome about that scene is every other character at that table, they go out of their way to try and make her feel good again. They all go for the ice cream. They're all like, oh, this is so great. It'll be a. I feel really sorry for who misses out on this ice cream. And so that feels like a microcosm of what the whole film ends up being, is that yeah. they all eventually, you know, as much as they're all getting their dreams crushed during this journey, there's one character who hasn't had her dreams crushed yet, and that's little Olive. So let's get her up, you know, at the beauty pageant, let's get her up on that stage. Yeah, but who's the first to join her on the stage? Yeah, when... that's true. <laughs> um, and I think that that, that whole pageant sequence, mm. that elongated pageant sequence, is hilarious and frightening. Um, and yeah. Almost in a way, it's sort of trying to convey what I was talking about when we started talking about this film, is, is that is what I'm talking about, that cultural impact playing out and this egotistical mm. echo chamber just making it worse and worse and worse. Where we live in a world now where people think it's, you know, we, we could put it on... Uh, you know, it's as easy as three clicks and then I'm on the, the sugar rush, the endorphin rush of reels <laughs> yep. where there are people that all they care about is how they look on camera or how yep. they look on themselves. And It's a that, very, very specific idea of beauty, beauty standards yep. and how we should up, 
hold ourselves in front of others. Um, you know, the, the, the aspect that people think it's okay to have full-blown mental breakdowns but set up a camera to film it and this this <laughs> theatre, this theatre of, of life that we've created, these fake perceptions is is beyond comprehension and mm. um, I find Kinnear's performance Richard in that moment when he's watching this pageant unfold and he's seeing all these little <laughs> girls giving these Absolutely horrified. answers and he's just completely horrified. Yeah. Um, because there's a moment of just confronting realization how disjointed he's been from olive's upbringing that he is now at a pageant mm. and he's driven across the nation for right to see what actually to, is is the dream is, yeah is, yeah which is the dream of this this child because he wasn't there yeah like, like like you said the television was raising her and that's he had no idea that that's the aspirate in his mind in his binary view of winners and losers you know, oh, this is the thing you want. We'll go for it. This will make you a winner. You're going to be the absolute best of it without realizing the content of what she's actually yep. going for. And what's interesting is that as as many of the characters in the family have that revelation is there, because like you said, it is an elongated. It's like the last 25, 30 minutes of the film is them at the pageant and each character slowly realizing how disgusted they are by, by you know their surroundings. And it's never, again, it's not Little Olive who has some sort of epiphany about, you know, her aspirations or why she's here or the beauty standards that follow. They make her follow her dream or they allow her to follow her dream and and also not be embarrassed because she joins in or the whole family joins in on the embarrassment on yeah. stage. And, and what's the, the beauty of that, that scene is, like you said, Olive's not having this moment where she's questioning herself. She's yep. actually, at that point... She's the only one who is clairvoyant and has no problem being the way she is. She yeah, doesn't exactly. feel like her ideals are being challenged. And that comes back to, like you said, that Oscar-winning scene with Arkin. <laughs> is her arc basically finishes at that point. She hasn't really got... Um, but she didn't need to because she's a child. The whole point mm-hmm. is that she is this, this perception of, like you said, someone who has actually achieved their dream mm. to their standard, to their satisfaction of themselves. And that's what a dream is, really. Yeah. A dream is not um, these big binary goals of, oh, I want to be the... Most of the time, they aren't these big binary goals. Oh, I want to be an Olympic athlete in tobogganing. Um, right. I know, I picked the greatest <laughs> sport. Um, just a lot of cool runnings. That's oh, why. Fair enough, um, fair enough. It's just, I want to get better at something. I want to get better at something or I want to be good at something mm. or I want to be good at something. But what is being good at something? Well, it's, I'm at this, it should be, I'm at this level. I want to get to this level. Um, it's not like, oh, I have to be the very best in everything ever. Mm. Well, it's interesting because we look at specifically what she was mimicking in the opening scene, which was the uh, Little Miss America, like winning and the facial expression she makes when she wins and is very excited and you juxtapose that with what she actually accomplishes at the end. So first off, you have, like you said, the, the fantastic scene in the middle of the film where she's concerned about whether she's pretty or not. And then there's the ice cream payoff when she meets the, the pageant girl and asks, like, do you eat ice cream? And she's like, yes, I do. And she goes on about the ice cream she eats. And I mean, that's a nice little moment as well for her. It's like, you, maybe you can have both ways. Maybe you can have your ice cream and eat it yeah. too, so to speak. <laughs> but then... It, she doesn't have that scene where she wins. She magically wins the the pageant of Little Miss Sunshine. 
she gets to do her performance her way, the way that her granddad taught her, which now becomes more of a bonding experience between the two of them as opposed to, you're right, just winning a beauty pageant. And she is not disappointed by the result, which is that they all almost get arrested (laughs) and kicked out of the pageant. Or the fact that the deal is you are never allowed to participate in a pageant again. She doesn't start crying on the spot or she's upset. She's happy because her whole family participated. Yeah. And were like, oh, you were so amazing. We're so proud of you. Your your granddad would have been proud of you. I mean, that's the key to it is that that is all the satisfaction she needed for that journey. Not necessarily to win the, the crown. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's about yeah. the journey. It's about the, it's about the friends we made along the way. Yes. Which just happened to be our family. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jake. Oh, look at me go. There you go. Have you got anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit. I know we sort of joked about the direction a bit earlier. Yeah. Because the writing is absolutely fantastic. But there is something to say about the two directors almost being invisible in the process. Mm -hmm. Now, I read and I didn't realize this. Apparently, they were very much open to uh, improvisation between the cast, which surprises me, but also doesn't surprise me because the dialogue is so back and forth and there's a lot of overlapping and things like that. So... I mean, that does speak to the fact that they were very much, like you said, they're still blocking and and the initial casting and and directing of emotions. There's all of that involved. But in terms of a directorial style shining through, Mm. they were very clearly not hands off, but hands up in the terms of let's let the writing and the performances sort of speak for themselves. And the film feels very play-like for being that because it is a collection of scenes and a collection of conversations between Mm. characters um, the only scene I would say where their style really shines through is again the opening scene, just the intensity of the close up on the face and then the television, mm. which is reflected in the only scene that I remembered from Battle of the Sexes. Well, there's two scenes I remember from Battle of the Sexes, which of course they did with um, uh, with Steve Carell many years later and Emma Stone, of course. Is there's a barber scene where Emma Stone's character is getting a haircut. And I remember being so struck by the style of that scene because it is so... It's a, it's a character getting a haircut. But it's it, the way it's shot, again, with intense close-ups on eyes and and really sensual editing and even mm. just the sound design. It's nothing about it. It's very stark. It's all very calming, like ASMR. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that's an impressively directed scene. And it's interesting that they're not only capable of doing that, but they're also capable of not doing that when they realize a script like this doesn't need that. Yeah. Because it all stands for itself. So I wanted to give a shout out to the directors for, for frankly, being invisible it's in the process of this filmmaking. Too, yeah. isn't it? Isn't it? It's, um, it's allowing the, the most real and genuineness. And I think this film is just genuine mm. in its sense. Like that's what makes it so good. It's yeah. not, it's, it's not defined by massive monologues or big uh, pieces of, of theatrical drama between family members. It's mm. innately allowed to breathe and be its own grow, uh, flourishing force. Yeah. Um, even just the subtlety of the comedy. Like, there's obviously dialogue jokes, but even the one moment when um, both Richard and his wife slam the door closed and they're very angrily sitting in the van, and then the van just very quietly... Very, very uh, slowly just rolls out of the frame. 
because they've established the engine like um or rather they don't have the clutch working yeah so like even just like little moments like that where it's like they choose not to cut in a moment like that because it just adds that little extra humor yeah so it's all very subtle very i keep wanting to use the word hands off that's not the accurate wording but yeah letting the story tell itself yeah. seemingly organic organically yeah <laughs> i like that zeke what's your highlight scene for little miss sunshine oh i'm i'm a big fan of uh the final sort of pageantry sequence but mm. I'll, I'll i'll go with a little bit of dialogue that occurs at the back end of the film and and it's between corel and dano oh um, that's a great scene it's a very powerful scene that definitely is the thesis statement of the film it's about mm. embracing that sort of imperfection aspect but we have two characters that have had their dreams crushed in completely different ways. They're both at different ages, and it is definitely their bookmark scene. But mm. um, I think well, that- their their whole relationship has been like kind of slowly bubbling. Yeah, this whole film, and it's finally a true dialogue. It's the first time they've actually spoken to each other. Yeah, as opposed to just one speaking to the other. Yeah, and it ends up being very powerful. It's on that massive uh, Santa Monica pier, Santa mm. Monica pier, and um, it is just a gorgeous scene um, mm. between the two. And who knew that a year later you'd have two actors in completely different uh, sort of perceptions, I think. Mm. You know, you know, Dano on the verge of doing There Will Be Blood and yeah. Crow obviously off to do The Office but and 40-year-old version. So it is is kind of crazy. Um, it's one of those softer scenes, but if not, it's the Kinnear reactions to the, the pageant. It's just... <laughs> hilarious i love the detail in the pageant they're wearing number tags on their bikinis yeah. oh it's so and I, gross. I don't i don't know if that's like the reality it, it, prob- is. it, it, it is, is wow yeah well there you go even if it wasn't it's such a perfect like display of just how gross and icky that whole yeah that whole thing is and then there are yeah. pageant mums too there are like the yeah. pageant parenting the dance the dance mums yeah so to insane. speak, I love um, Pee Wee Herman as the host. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Pee Wee Herman lookalike we're going to call him. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> In, if that movie's made five or six years later, it's Will Arnett doing that voice. Let's be real. That's it's, good. That, That's that it. <laughs> and I love the makeup in those scenes. He looks so plasticky. Yeah, and they all look so plasticky in that scene. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Very Barbie esque. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Jake? Indeed. Um. It's got it's got to be the scene with with our two actors, the you know the I I love the grandpa yeah and my pretty you know you must pretty grandpa yeah I love the repetition of it because she doesn't want him to go away o- almost like a a subliminal feeling that this might be the last conversation she ever yeah. has with her grandpa, and just his patience of always responding always turning, and and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest when I when he passed away what like a week or two ago. That was one of the first things that came up on Facebook was that scene. And thank God, unlike all social media these days, they didn't layer it with voiceovers and music and they just had the scene and it just yeah. played. And I got really emotional because they're so they're both so good. Yeah. The way she just breaks into tears as well. It's they're absolutely phenomenal. It just it's a great scene. This is oh, It's back it, when cinema was original and not saturated. And it generally that was the first note I wrote. They don't make them like this anymore. And I know it's weird to say about a film that's not even 20 years old, but it really feels like it's so hard to find. And I'm glad to read that it was a financial explosive success. 
It made $100 million off a less than $10 million budget. Got nominated for four Oscars. I think I won two of them, including for screenwriting, yeah. which, oh my God. Huge. Yes. Absolutely, this deserves screenplay for, for uh, Oscar for screenplay. Um, this is just a classic film. It's so well made. It's so beautiful. It appeals to everyone, no matter how dark the mm. humor is at times. And boomed, boomed the industry for Volkswagen. <laughs> there you go. Oh goodness, yeah. Well, the way the way the van was all falling <laughs> apart. I love the horn that doesn't stop like beeping. Yeah, it's so good because that, that is a genuine fear <laughs> if that starts happening on the road. Man. Me not hitting a car right now is a genuine. Oh jeez! And then Hank Schrader pulls you over. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's so good. Well, Little Miss Sunshine is currently available on Disney Plus. Yes, which uh, you know all the talk we had a moment ago about the strike. I think I might cut a few of these streaming services. I'm tempted to do it. Which which ones are getting the cut? The the problem is like I would wouldn't mind cutting Disney Plus. And I will get rid of Prime because I think a few people in my house have Prime already. I've definitely so limited, so I've moved Netflix down to like basic, like oh, one, okay. one screen at a time. Fair enough. Because Jordy and I both pay for it. Yeah. But I was like, I don't need two screens. If he's on it, I'll just go on one of the other ones. Like, Fair enough. There's I'll, enough to watch. Or I'll go. I'll use there. a DVD. Like. Yeah. It's so cheap now, guys. Go to an op shop, buy a dollar DVD instead. I, I got Close Encounters of the Third Kind on Blu-ray a week or two ago for six dollars. And it's a two-disc version with, like, a little booklet in it. and Yeah, it's just... Oh. Anyway. Yeah. But that's okay, Z, because as much as we're downplaying streaming and talking about how much streaming sucks, yes. let's talk about what's coming to streaming this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, on the old, wonderful Netflix, who are apparently one of the main reasons the strike is still going. Thanks, bloody, Netflix. Thanks, Netflix. Uh, you got films like They Cloned Tyrone, a genre-bending sci-fi homage... The 70s black uh, black exploitation films starring Jamie Foxx, John Boyega, and Tayana Paris. And um, this is this is one of those blacklist scripts that they must have pulled out of the vault one day. So yeah. might be pretty good. Who knows? Sounds really unique. You got The Deepest Breath, a documentary about a free diver training to break a world record. That's neat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, coming to stand this week, you got films like Insomnia. It's a nice little Christopher Nolan. If you want to get into it, there you go. There's a start. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and this is the end. There you go. We mentioned Seth Rogen earlier on the show. Uh, Coming to binge, you've got DC's Black Adam. Yay. 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 Another great film that's totally original (laughs) and interesting. It it actually comes to Netflix as well, so there you go. Uh, We've got Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody and Lyle Lyle Crocodile, which come to both Prime and binge this week. And finally, coming to binge, you've got House Party, which sees aspiring club promoters and best friends decide to throw a huge party at the site of their latest cleaning job, LeBron James's house. Apparently, this is a remake. I heard that somewhere. Okay. It, it might be a different person's house. Yeah. Like a different famous person, but... Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Can't say I've heard it. Maybe it was Project X. That's what they're, yeah. <laughs> that's what they're basing it on. <laughs> Inspired by Project X. Uh, you never know. And coming to Apple TV Plus this week, you've got a documentary on Stephen Curry's rise from undersized college player to four-time NBA champion. And that documentary is called Underrated. There you go. So, yeah. Interested at all? NBA? Huh? No, I've never been a big basketball fan. I do yeah. like a bio, like a biopic occasionally. I really liked Michael Jordan's Last Dance. I That's thought right. that was a yep. fantastic docu-series. But... Um, 
yeah, I'm not like fixated on NBA. Mm. Um, it might be something I watch some point, but fair enough. Not chomping at the bit. No, that's that's. I, hey, I'm not going to push you to it. <laughs> I'm not. Hey, sport. I'm not your guy. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I did go to that Freer game the other day. Ugh, rough. Oh boy, very rough. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> well done, Carlton. Uh, coming to cinemas this week. So. <laughs> <laughs> there um there are two films I think nobody wants to go up against this week. No, so there's no one else going up against. There's them. only one other film coming out this week. Okay. It is called Sugar and Stars and it sees Jan Zahid raised by uh, w- sorry, raised between foster homes and group homes attempt to make his dream come true to work with the greatest pastry chefs and become the best there ever was. And that's what we're watching next week on the show. <laughs> You're a funny man. I did add that last sentence as a Pokemon reference, just so just so everyone's out there. Now, Zeke. Yeah, first time ever. But yeah, this is the okay first time. We could have we could have done a poll actually. Yeah, actually, that w- this could have been a that, poll. That would have been retrospectively. That would have yeah. been a, not a bad idea. But I don't mind this idea. Yes. So there are obviously two gigantic films coming out later this week. I'm watching both of them. Yeah, in- indeed we are. I've actually already got tickets to. On Saturday, to watch for, for Oppenheimer both. at two thirty, yeah, and then Barbie at seven. You have to end with Barbie. Yes, you can't. You you can't. <laughs> I think that's what I'm doing too. Yeah, that but makes I'm sense. gonna. We're gonna risk it on the Thursday and just. You're going to fit a walk in. Oh yeah. really? Yeah, we're gonna see oh, if we can squeeze in. I don't. You, you check it, mate. Check it. Yeah, it's getting tough out there. Okay, I might have to look online. Look it up. Well, yeah. I'm going to Southlands. There's really? A few, there's a few of us going, and there's still plenty of seats left. Because okay. Southlands is a very reliable Hoyt cinema that nobody goes to. Yes. So you're not going to have too much trouble getting tickets there. Yeah. Because I think the original plan was Carousel, and that was, like, long done a week well, ago. My logic was hmm. school's gone back. During the day, I should be okay Thursday. Oh, that's true, of course, because you're on break. Because I'm on Most break. kids aren't. Most kids aren't. Only a couple of... You go during the day. Yeah, that's my risk. I reckon you got a bigger shot at getting Barbie during the day and Oppenheimer at night. Yeah, we'll see. How, I'll see how I fare. The um, other thing you could do is Barbie technically opens on Wednesday because some of them are doing the girls' night out preview screening. Ooh, wouldn't mind doing. So the you girls could night. sneak in on a yeah. Wednesday, but well, I don't know if you have to wear a dress to that though. I've actually got a Barbie shirt ready to go. Throw up. I'm gonna get white. <laughs> I'm gonna get white chino pants. And uh, oh, do a pink nice. shirt with white chino pants. Nice. I'm going for. You're getting yeah. pretty close to the Ryan Gosling like That's... cowboy Ken look. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's about right. That's about right. Yeah. Do that. So look, we don't know. We're gonna do both films. Yeah. But we gotta we gotta start with who one. draws first blood. Exactly. So I have a coin, Zeke. Yes. Now I want you to call it. Okay. And I'm gonna flip it, and whatever it lands on. Yeah. We'll do next week. Okay. How high should I throw it up? I'll go heads. Yep. Because it's got Queen Lizzie on it. Um, <laughs> the late Queen Lizzie. Yes. Um, uh, we'll go heads for Barbie. Okay. Because she is like the OG Barbie. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Our queen. All right. And then Tails like. for Oppenheimer. I like it. All right. So should I throw it up onto the roof? Should I go crazy? Yeah. So, yeah. Go, go nuts with it. It'll I'm be... going to, I'm going to throw it in that direction. Cause I don't want to hit my screen. Yeah. Okay. And um, aim it towards you might me. Have, you might have to call yeah, it. Yeah. I'll, I'll call it. 
All right, here we go. So heads for Barbie. I might have to add the coin sound effect. Cause you it's... know, it might come out. So here we go. Maybe. Should I like, like, flip it like that? Yeah. Okay. I've got to get the thumb strength going here. Right, oh, here we go. that's good. What's it? What's it? It is indeed a heads. Oh! Let's go! Come on, Barbie. Let's go party. So, Jake, what are we doing next week on the show? I guess next week on the show, Jake, we're watching... Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Put the radio fast and goes cruising just as fast as she can now. I thought I might stay over tonight. Why? Because we're girlfriend boyfriend. To do what? I'm actually not sure. I'm coming with you. Did you bring your rollerblades? I literally go nowhere without them. Oh, looks like this beach is a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beat you off right now, Ken. I'll beach off with you any day, Ken. Anyone who wants to beach him off has to beach me off first. I will beach both of you off at the same time. Beach both of us off? Nobody's gonna beach anyone off. To live in Barbie land is to be a perfect being in a perfect place. Unless you have a full-on existential crisis. Or you're a Ken. That's it. That's the write-up. There we go. That's all we need. There we go. That's We're doing we Barbie next week at the show, everyone. Let's yep. go! But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with... Barbie. That's the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Barbie. Let's go, Barbie.